I want to tag our text today, the way of courage, the way of courage. Let's pray before we dive into God's word. Thank you, Lord, for your word this morning that speaks to us wherever we find ourselves, whether we find ourselves this morning in a place of celebration or a place of concern and worry or anxiety or depression or we're, we're rejoicing because there's something great that has happened. Wherever we find our place today, God, you speak to us. You speak to us right where we are. You move towards us, care for us and love us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would do that today by the power of your spirit. Change us as you move towards us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you were to go to the New York City Public Library this week, you would find many different ancient artifacts that are on display in this massive library. And one of those ancient artifacts is a small copper globe. It's hollow on the inside, and this globe is only about four and a half inches wide. It's called the Hunt Lennox Globe. And it's actually the third oldest surviving globe in the entire world. It dates all the way back to 1510, 1510. Now you think about that and you think about just how fascinating that might be to look at a map and think what they thought the world was like in 1510. I mean, this is before the internet. This is before airplanes. This is before people had gone to a lot of places in their life. They usually lived their life in a small little area. And yet here is a globe representing the world as they knew it. And this uh, wealthy architect, he, he kind of bought it on accident. He actually bought it for his, his kids to use as a toy. And then his friend said, hey, do you know what that is? And so he convinced him to, to preserve it and to put it in the library so the rest of the world could see this. And what's made the globe famous is not just its age, but it's actually a small inscription on the globe. Etched into the metal at the edge of, of the coast of Asia is this little tiny phrase, just three words in Latin, but if you translate it into English, it's this, here be dragons. Here be dragons. And you may have heard that phrase because now it's made its way into Hollywood and comic books and various different things. It's become famous because this was the edge of the world as far as they knew it. No, No one had ever gone past that. And so in their mind, you're going past the known into the unknown And it must be scary. It must be terrifying. We we don't even know what's there. It must be dragons. And so they just literally wrote it on the map. Here be dragons. Because they were going from what was comfortable and known into what was uncomfortable and unknown. And that took courage. G.K. Chesterton, uh, he wrote this one time. He said, courage is almost a contradiction in terms. It means a strong desire to live, get this, taking the form of a readiness to die. I like that. It's a strong desire to live. For the sake of life, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to be courageous, but I have to be willing to die. That's courage. And in order to, to go where the dragons be, right, it takes courage. And I don't know, I mean, most of us have some kind of dragon in our life that we're dealing with. It could be the teenagers who are living in your house, right? I mean, they're they're just, it's it's hard, it's difficult. We're going into the unknown. 
They're going into the unknown. You're going into it with them. And, and we don't know what's going to happen next. This is as far as I've ever been now that they're 13. I don't know. Right, whatever it may be, you're, you're trying to show them grace. You're trying to love them. You're trying to train them for life that's ahead of them. Right, it, it could be that. It could be the, the stress of inflation and financial things going on right now and the rent that's rising at your place and all these things that are going on. It just feels like you're facing dragons. These, these are things I haven't had to deal with before. It, it could be all kinds of things. The, the diagnosis at your doctor that completely changes all the plans that you had for the next six months. Whatever it is, right? we come up against these things and it looks like it looks like I don't know how I'm going to deal with it. And so if I'm going to move forward, I need courage. For the sake of life, I have to be willing to endure and, and enter in. But how do I do that? How do I do that? So we're continuing our series this morning through the Gospel of, of Mark. And we've been calling the series The Way. And this series is really focusing in on how Mark uh, paints this picture of Jesus, especially in the first half of the Gospel of Mark, that he is engaging us with this question, who is Jesus? Everyone in the, in the text is wrestling with that. They're trying to figure out who is this man who keeps doing all these things that we can't explain. And so in the sixth chapter of Mark, he starts to give an interesting answer to that question because the whole chapter is about hardship. If you go back to the beginning of the chapter, Jesus gets rejected by his own hometown. He goes to his hometown to preach and everyone rejects him. And then he leaves that place and he sends the disciples then to go on to other towns to preach. And then they get rejected. And then after the disciples get rejected, it, it cuts away to another scene where John the Baptist is with the king, King Herod. And Herod beheads John the Baptist. And then right after that, it goes back to Jesus and the disciples, and they're out in the wilderness with 5,000 people who are starving, and they've got no food. Right? It goes from rejection to persecution to death to starvation. That's chapter 6. And now, by the end of chapter 6, you're starting to wonder, who is Jesus again, and why are we following him? Like, we didn't sign up for this. this. This hardship doesn't seem like what we thought we were getting into. But the way of Jesus is the way of courage, right? It's the way of courage. And so how do we have gospel courage to move into these hard things? This is what we find in this passage. And so first, we're going to look at the winds against us. If you're taking notes, that's the first thing, the winds against us. Look at me at verse 45. And we'll jump into the story. Verse 45, immediately he, Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before them to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. Now remember, Jesus has just fed 5,000 people plus. It might be more because that might just be the men they were counting. It might be 10,000 if you count the women and the children. It, all these thousands and thousands of people that were in front of Jesus with five loaves and two fish. Imagine the buzz that's going around the crowd. People are lingering. They're, they're trying to figure out what just happened. And, and so no one's wanting to leave Jesus in this moment. And so Jesus realizes we've, we've got to move on to the next thing. And, and so he tells his disciples to go, but the disciples don't want to go either. But the disciples don't want to go for a different reason. The, the word that Mark uses there where it says made, that Jesus made them get in the boat... 
It's a little stronger than that. It's more like he forced them or or he compelled them or he had to twist their arm. So if you kind of go back into chapter 4, which we covered last week, you see that, that the disciples have been here before. The last time the disciples were in a boat with Jesus, what happened? They almost died in the boat. The disciples had just gotten out of a storm. The last time they were in a boat, they almost lost their life. And now Jesus says, go get in the boat. No, Jesus, we're staying right here. This is where it's safe. We want to stay right next to you. We want to stay on dry ground. It's about to get nighttime. We're, We're not going to cross over the sea. And yet Jesus insists. Jesus says, no, you're going to get in the boat. Get in the boat and cross over. I'm going to stay here, dismiss the crowd, and then I'm going to go up on the mountain and pray. And by the time you get over there, I'll meet you over there. And so the typical fishing boat in ancient Galilee was about 30 feet long, if you could imagine that. And, and four people were rowing the boat. That, that was the way they, they powered the boat. And the boat, this kind of boat, would take anywhere from four to six hours to get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee in good weather. And here they are, they get in the boat, and, and it's about to be the, the evening, and they start rowing. And sure enough, as soon as they start rowing, the storm comes. This is what it says in verse 48. And he, Jesus, now on the mountain praying, he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. I mean, here they are, they're, they're rowing and rowing and rowing. They're going as fast as they can, but the wind is blowing so hard against them, they're really not going anywhere. I mean, they're making a little bit of progress, but it's so painful. The word there means they're being tormented. Like, they're just so exhausted by the amount of effort it takes to go anywhere. They're worn out. The last time they were in a storm, they thought they were going to lose their life. They were terrified of, of death. This time... They're exhausted. They're just exhausted. Jesus, we told you we shouldn't have gone in here, right? I mean, it's, it's the middle of the night now. It's cold. It's, we're tired. We're, we're worn out. There's no end in sight. How did we get here again? How, how did we get back in this same situation? I'll tell you how. This is why. Hardship, listen, hardship is essential for heart change. Hardship is essential for heart change. Maybe you've heard of C.S. Lewis. Uh, he, he's written a lot of books and become famous uh, through his brilliant writing and creative writing, but maybe you don't know his story. Maybe you don't know that his brilliance was really born out of hardship. I mean, C.S. Lewis, this famous author, he tasted pain in so many different ways. Here's just a few. He lost his mother at an early age. And then after that, his father abandoned them emotionally and was very disconnected from him as a child. And then he suffered a respiratory illness as a teenager that almost lost his, he almost lost his life. Then he fought in World War I, was injured in battle. And then later after that, he had to bury his own wife. Through all of that hardship, C.S. Lewis starts to reflect on what he would later call the problem of pain and put it down into a book that we have today. And in that book, there's so many profound insights, but one of the most famous is this right here, and I want to sit on this for a minute. He says this, Pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. 
Did you hear that? God is, is shouting to us in our pain. In other words, God, God has purpose in whatever the painful situation is that you find. See, what, what are the winds against you right now? What, what are the winds that are blowing on you right now that, that you feel like you're, you're rowing and you're rowing and you're rowing and, and you're going as fast as you can and, and, and it's getting dark and it's getting cold and you're tired and you're wondering, is this ever going to end? How am I going to get past this? It seems like I'm making some progress, but the progress is so slow that I don't know if I'm going to make it. See, maybe this morning that, that doesn't describe you, right? Maybe today you, you're in an easy spot and, and the wind is blowing behind you. It's just you got a tailwind and everything's going well and, and it's moving faster than you would have ever thought. And, and that's all right. That, that's a good thing, right? But let me tell you, though, if, if that's where you are right now, so someone has said one time that you're either coming out of pain or you're going into pain. But, but the world we live in, this fallen world, is full of pain. And so you might find yourself in an easier situation right now, but just wait. The winds change. And what happens is in this story, they, they thought, uh, you know, we shouldn't do this because this is what's going to happen. And sure enough, it happens. And, 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 you know, they entered into this painful situation, not because it was an accident, but because God had sent them into it. See, wherever you are in the hardship, God has sent you right there. He sent you right there. There's not a moment of your life where God has somehow lost control of what's happening. There's not a moment in your life where your pain is not being held in His careful, caring hand. Every, every single moment, whatever it is, right? The, the winds might be against you, but God isn't against you. The, the people at your job, they might be against you, but God isn't against you. The cancer might be against you, but God isn't against you. As Joseph testified to us, right, all the way back in the book of Genesis, he said to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. In all of this suffering, in all of this hardship, God is working out his plan that, that in some way, in some, in some facet, he is going to get glory and goodness out of this and it's going to change my life. Because he's shouting to me in my pain. He has a purpose in the pain. Right? That change process is not going to be a one-time event. Sometimes you go through something. You ever, you ever gone through a hard time and, and you're like, all right, God, I, I learned the lesson. I figured it out. I knew what you were saying to me. I, I knew that I needed to change this in my life. We're good on that now. I don't want to go through anything else anymore. I, I don't want to deal with that anymore. But, but you know, like if you live long enough, you start to realize this is just chapter six that comes after chapter four. Right? Like, I know I dealt with that in chapter 4, but here I am again because this is the way it works. That hardship is the way that God changes me. And the way that he changes me is not going to be quick. It's not going to be a one-time event. Listen, heart change is slow change. It's slow change. It takes weeks and months and years and decades for God to, over time, transform your heart through all the storms that you enter into. 
It's after rowing and rowing and going and going that you look back and you realize it was hard, but I made a lot of progress. You look back and you realize I'm stronger than I was when I entered into this place, when I came into this storm, because I've been through six just like it. And now I know that this is how God works and this is what he's doing in my life. And I can I can settle into the fact that his hardship or my hardship is part of his handiwork. It's part of what he's doing in my life. Right. You're you're stronger because of that. He sends you in it to change you. Yet before the change comes, there's often confusion. Right. That's the second point, the confusion within us. Look at what happens next in verse 48. It says, in about the fourth watch of the night, which was around 3 to 6 a.m., so it's, it's late night, early morning, still dark, fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Now, notice the contrasting sight here for a moment. Jesus is up on the mountain, right? He's praying. And it's getting late. It's been hours by now. And apparently they hadn't made much progress because they can still, or, or Jesus can still see them. I mean, they, they probably haven't gone very far at all. Jesus can see them and he sees that they're struggling. He sees that they're, they're painfully making progress, but not very much. And so he's moved out of compassion to, to go towards them, right? Jesus sees his disciples struggling and he wants to move towards them to go help them. But how is he going to get out there? This is the famous scene that Jesus goes and walks on the water. Now, you may have heard of this before, and it's all over our culture. If you've read the Bible before, Jesus walking on water. And in Matthew's version, we get a little bit more of the story, and you actually see Peter walking on the water. But Mark really focuses on Jesus here. He leaves Peter out of the whole story. And what we see here is Jesus is not doing this to show off. Right? He's not just showing his power. He, he's really doing it to show two things. It's number one, his compassion. Right? There, there's no other way to get there. Jesus is trying to get there as fast as he can, so he walks on water to get to his disciples who are in need. But secondly, it's to show his divinity. It's to show who he is. Right? Job chapter 9 has this beautiful description that people think Mark is maybe uh, describing here using the language. It says that God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. In other words, what Job was describing as he describes God is God is the only one, the only one who walks on water. And so when Jesus comes to them walking on water, he's saying something about who he is. Now here's the contrast. When the disciples see Jesus... They think they saw a ghost. Now, I'll, I'll give them credit. That's weird, right? You're, you're in the middle of a storm, and, and it's dark, it's late, you're tired, and you look over to your right, and there's Jesus just walking on the water. I mean, if you saw your best friend just walking on the water in the middle of the storm on a boat, that's weird. But you probably wouldn't think it's a ghost, What's strange is, is the way that, that Mark describes it. Jesus isn't like see-through at this moment. Je- Jesus isn't, uh, you know, he's not changed his form in any way. And, and so he's very particular about how the scene is described. It says that when they see Jesus, they are terrified. And the word there for terrified means to be thrown into confusion. It's, it's the word you would use for uh, like troubled waters. They're just chaos. Like their internal life just gets totally confused. 
how could this be anything but a threat? How could this be anything but dangerous, right? And so when they see Jesus, they see a threat. They get thrown into confusion. There's no celebration. Jesus has arrived to save us. Jesus has arrived. Thank God we're going to be okay, right? That's not their response. It gets worse for them. They think now we're really dead. They're, they're terrified and confused. Remember the last storm when they, when they looked at Jesus and he's sleeping in the boat? What was their accusation? Don't you care about us? Here it's, who are you? They don't even know who he is enough to accuse him. They, they are so disoriented in the middle of their exhausting hardship that they can't even identify him. They can't even identify him. Fear, listen, fear will confuse God's help for harm. For harm. There's a man by the name of Simon Wecker who's an artist in Germany, and he confused Google Maps a few years ago. In 2020, he decided he was going to borrow 99 phones, cell phones, from his friends. And he put them all in a little red wagon. You've seen those little, like the kids that play, the wagons that kids play with. He put them in a wagon and he walked down an empty street in the middle of Germany. And he, he's walking down this empty street and, and there's not a car in sight, not, not very many people at all. And as he's walking down the street, if you were to pull up Google Maps at that point, you would look and it would have that dreaded dark red line saying that there's a severe traffic jam right in the middle of town where there's no cars. If you look out, there's nothing. But if you look on your phone... It's a severe traffic jam. They got people going the other way, rerouting, don't go this way, accident, right? All because they saw 99 cell phones in one place. And so eventually Google caught on and, and they responded kindly. Somebody from Google said this, Our tech has learned to distinguish cars from motorcycles, but we haven't quite cracked the code for traveling by wagon. I love that. And they said, we're grateful for your creativity. Right, but, but what, it's, what it's saying is uh, it, it got confused and, and interpreted the situation as something that was harmful. You hear that? It interpreted the situation wrongly, thinking that this means there's something harmful. Have you ever been going through hardship and, and you just can't identify God anymore? Right? You, you went into the hardship and you knew him. It was easy for you to identify. You, you had a great relationship. You're talking, you're, you're reading scripture, you're going to church, you're having great conversations with your friends, whatever it is. Right? You, you felt like your relationship with God was good and healthy. And then when the hardship came and, and the wind started blowing in the wrong direction and, and the exhaustion set in and all these things started happening, all of a sudden you realize, I I'm struggling to see God in my life. I'm not even sure if I recognize him anymore. I, I thought I could see him, and, and now I'm not sure if I do. In fact, when I, when I look out and I, and I try to find him, what I see are threats, what I see are harmful things. I don't even see him anymore. And what used to be easy became hard. And you start asking things like, God, are you here? And your best friend becomes unrecognizable. Unrecognizable. 
right? Your, your Savior is hidden in plain sight. It's not, that, it's not that God somehow disappeared. It's that our ability to identify Him as being present has been hindered. What is that? It, it comes from the fear that springs up from our hearts, right? This, this deep fear that God is, is really here to harm me, not to help me. God is trying to harm me by allowing this infidelity in my marriage. God is trying to harm me by allowing this diagnosis in my health. God is trying to harm me by this relapse in my addiction. Or God is trying to harm me by this broken relationship at my job. I, I don't know what it is, but somehow you, you take in the situation, the circumstance in your life, and the winds start blowing, and it's hard. It's hard. And now you start seeing it through a lens of fear. This can't be God. This can't be his care. This can't be his love for me. Because if it was God, it would be easy. If God was present, if he was in this situation, then it wouldn't be this difficult. There wouldn't be this suffering. So clearly he's not here. See, hardship will expose in my life and in your life It'll expose this, this lurking unbelief that's deep within us. Deep, deep within us. Listen, we, we believe that the presence of pain means that God isn't present. If pain is present in my life, God must be absent. He must be absent. And listen, it, it's a very subtle prosperity gospel. If you've never heard of the prosperity gospel, just turn on cable television Right? The prosperity gospel is, is this in a nutshell. Uh, if God is present, life is easy. And, and the flip side, if, if life is easy, that must mean God is present. And so if, if life is hard, then, then God must be absent. And, and if God is absent, then life gets hard. So, so there's this sense that there's, there's a correlation between if I'm going through hard times, I must be abandoned by God. And if things are great, he must be blessing my life. But let me ask you this. Is God present in the healing, but not the sickness? Is God present in your success, but not your failure? Right? Is, is God present in the abundance of your life, but not in poverty? Of course not. God is God no matter the circumstance. He's God no matter what you're walking through, whatever the, the change might be that you're, you're feeling or you're experiencing. Whatever is happening in your life doesn't change who He is. And it doesn't change where He is. He's always there. He's always there. Even if we can't see it. And so courageous faith looks hardship in the face and it declares God is here. He's here to help me. He's here to care for me. He's here to change me. He has sent me here and he's gone with me. He's here. How do we have that kind of confidence? This is what I want to look at last. It's, let's look at the God who's with us, the God with us. Look at verse 50. This is incredible. At the end of the verse, it says, But immediately he, Jesus, spoke to them and said this, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. 
Jesus responds to their, uh, to their faithlessness, to, the, to their fear. He responds to that with this call to courage. He says, take heart, which can be translated, take courage, to, to, to be boosted up. He, he's saying, and then he says it on the opposite side too. He says, do not fear. So you got the positive, take courage, and then on the opposite, don't fear. And right in the middle of those two, what does he say? It is I. Right in the middle of those two, he's giving them how that happens and the reason they can be confident. It is I. And, and in, the, in the Greek language there, it's literally I am. Ego e me. Now, if you know the Bible and you go back to the Old Testament, that should ring a bell. Anytime you hear that phrase, I am, it carries weight with it. It carries significant with, significance with it because when God comes to reveal himself to Moses... When they're suffering in the bondage of Egypt, what does he tell Moses? He says, go and tell the people that I am has sent you. Tell them that's my name. I am. It's God's way of describing himself as self-sufficient. He doesn't need anyone else. He doesn't need anything else. He, he's God all by himself. Right? He, he doesn't need anything outside of himself. He doesn't need any circumstances. He doesn't need any power. He has it all within himself. He is. I am. And when Jesus says, take heart, I am, he's claiming that name for himself. Jesus is saying, not only do I walk on water like God, but I claim the name of God because that's who I am. I am God in human flesh right here. Take heart. I am. Don't be afraid. But there's one more thing. If you go back to verse 48, this is my favorite part. In verse 48, there's a small phrase. You might have missed it. It says that he was going to pass by them. The, the imagery that, that looks back to Moses is all over this passage. Jesus goes up to the mountain and he meets with God just like Moses does. And then when he comes down, he moves towards the people just like Moses does. And then he claims the name of God just like God did with Moses. And then right after that, in Exodus chapter 33, when Moses comes down from the mountain, he has this mountaintop experience with God, right? And he comes down and what happens? All the people were worshiping the golden calf. And Moses is throwing up his hands saying, how, how am I supposed to do this? How am I going to lead these people through the wilderness when none of them want to follow you, God? And what does he do? He prays. He goes to God and he laments and he begs and he pleads. And he says, God, if, if we're going to do this, these are your people. You better show up and do something. And so Moses starts complaining to God and he says, God, the only way we're going to make it is if you show up and you show me your presence. If I can see your glory, I know you're with me. If I can see your glory, then I know you haven't forgotten me through all this pain and through all the wilderness we're about to walk through. I know that you are here. And what does God say? God says, okay, I'll show up, but you can't see the fullness of who I am. You can only see my backside. Because if you see my face, it's too much for you. It's too holy. It's too pure. It, it will consume you because of your sin. And so he hides Moses in a cleft of the rock, it says, in just a little cubby hole. He hides Moses in there and God passes by Moses and Moses sees God's backside and he sees his glory and he, it affirms to Moses, God hasn't forgotten me. He is here with us. Now fast forward to our story. Jesus comes off the mountain 
He comes, walks on the water. He moves towards them. And it says he was going to pass by them just like God did with Moses. But he doesn't. He stops. Jesus stops on the water. And instead of passing by them, and instead of just showing them his backside and waving and saying, I've got you, you'll be all right. He stops and he takes it one step further. He gets into the boat. Jesus enters into their hardship. And when he does that, the winds cease. The winds cease because God is there. See, courage comes by knowing God has come. God has come. God hasn't passed by our pain. He entered into it in the person of Jesus. God took on our form. He took on our face to show us his face. Colossians chapter 1 says, For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus got into the boat of humanity, right? Taking on all our burdens. He, he entered in and he knows. He knows. He knows what it's like to lose loved ones. He knows what, it likes, what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to live on the margins of society. He knows how it feels to be overwhelmed by sin. He knows what it feels like to face the winds against you, rowing and rowing until you're exhausted. He knows hardship, not from a distance, but from his own experience. Because the greatest hardship that Jesus endured was the greatest show of his glory. It was the cross. The cross is where God proves once and for all his best work is done through pain. It's done through pain. Jesus enters into the pain of our sin and suffering by becoming sin for us. He takes our place and our punishment. On the cross, we are hidden not in a rock, but in Jesus himself. Right? We're, we're hidden in him. We're hidden in the Son of God. We're safe in his presence. We're safe from all the judgment and the wrath, all the condemnation. We're safe as God turns his face away from Jesus and turns his face towards us because he took our place. See, because Jesus took our place, we can take heart. We can have courage. We can have faith because Jesus goes before us into the hardest of places. He goes in, into the pains of death, into the bottom of the grave, and into the very depths of hell for you and me. And so he declares to us, take heart, I am with you. Take heart in your unbearable sin. Take heart in your struggling relationship. Take heart in the exhausting pain. Take heart, it is I. Don't fear. See, what hardship what suffering, what pain, what sin do you find yourself in today? I want you to hear this. Jesus has moved towards you in it. He's moved towards you in it to be present with you. His face is towards you. And that, that's the good news of the gospel. We say it every week in the benediction as we close the service, right? We lift up our hands and we say, may the Lord turn his face towards you. That's the good news of the gospel, that God turned away from Jesus as he took our sin so he could turn towards you. And when he turns towards you, it's his favor forever. Forever. He never leaves you or forsakes you. He, he is with you, whatever it is. But it's only for those who are hidden in him. Like Moses, to be, to be hidden in Christ is what makes you safe. To put your faith in him, to trust him, that no matter what it is, I'm going to trust him. What he has done and who he is, is enough for me.
He is I am. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you move towards us and you don't just pass by. We don't get just a glimpse of who you are. We don't get just a glimpse of your glory and your protection and your salvation. We get the fullness. We get the face of God turned towards us, stepping into whatever it is that we know. We know that you sympathize with all of our weaknesses because you came and endured them with us. In fact, you endured more than us as you took on the sin of the world and bore that sin for us. More than all of the sin of our whole life multiplied by millions and millions upon you in that moment. You've endured. You've done great work through pain. You've done great work through death. You bring life. And so Lord, today we pray that you would help us to trust you in that, to have courage to move forward into whatever unknown it is that you've called us into, whether it's confessing and confronting the sins in our heart, whether it's walking through pain and difficulty with unknown challenges and unknown results, whether it's sickness and loss, whatever it is, may we trust you in it, knowing that you're with us. We pray in Jesus' name.